in the house that I bought, I was in a family ward, and this sweet woman got up to bear her testimony. I'd never met her before. And she was so quick to get up to the podium, and she was the first person to bear her testimony. And she gets up and she grabs the side of the podium and she does this. I don't know what I'm going to say. I don't even know why I'm up here. Because I'm really mad at God and I haven't prayed in a really long time. And I'm like, this is so awesome. <laughs> Who's a testimony like this? So I'm just glued to her. And I'll share this experience with you. It's so sacred to me. But as she's talking about things, she says, I just spent the last four years watching my sister die of breast cancer. And I'm really mad because God didn't save her life. And we fasted and prayed that he would. And he left behind a wife, or he left behind, she left behind a husband and two little girls, and it's just not fair. And I'm crying in Sacramento. I'm like, it's not fair. That's the saddest story I've ever heard. And then the thought popped into my head that said, you're going to go out with that dead lady's husband. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought in my mind, I know, because I made it a free world. Like, it's just a matter of time. So, and I did. You probably know someone. I, I'm guaranteed someone here is related to someone I dated, because, I mean, I flew to, like, New Mexico for a blind date. That's, that's how desperate I was. That, that New Mexico desperate. I was willing to fly for a blind date. Like, I'll date anybody. So, Sunday school gets over, and I walk into the back of the gospel doctrine class, and I said, hi, I've never met you. Thank you so much for sharing your testimony. I really appreciate it. And she grabs my hand and says, I want you to go out with my dead sister's husband. <laughs> and I'm like, who has a pen and paper? Like, I'm writing my number as fast as I can. And so she took my name and number and called him that night and said, I have the perfect person for you. She's so awesome. She teaches our gospel doctrine class. She's never been married. She's a seminary teacher, and you're going to love her. And my husband said at the time, Jim said, yeah, I can't date someone that religious. And she goes, you're not that religious. <laughs> Thank you. So she called me that Saturday, and we went out, and we got married nine months later. And that is our wedding day. And I was a bride for four days. And then we came home from our honeymoon, and I woke up a mom. <sighs> I got to tell you what. I, I, listen, when I was single, I was the greatest mom in the world. <laughs> I see them backing up in the store, and I'm like, that poor mom, she just needs other logic, God's choices. <laughs> yeah, that's really For some kids it does, apparently none of mine. But when this, this, this moment happened, um, it was a beautiful experience. I loved it. Beautifully difficult. The hardest thing I've ever done. Like, I don't have the chops for being a mom. I, I'm not really good at it. I try really hard. My kids think I'm, you know, my kids think I'm okay. The two kids right here, they hated me for 12 years. That little one in the green shirt, well, she hated me so much. I mean, in fact, she ended up, now we love each other. She has given me permission to say this about her because when she was that old, the spirit had said to me, listen, that little one's going on a mission. I would have been like, there's no way God could use anyone that evil or mean. <laughs> no way. And she grew up and became this lovely human being and served a mission and just came back. And now she loves me and I love her. And so it, it worked. And then the one over here and the little, the little one on the other side, that's Kirsten. She has mild cerebral palsy. So the right side of her body doesn't work and the left side of her brain is badly damaged. 
and um, we have a lot of struggles. She'll just be with us for a while, but she did just recently graduate from LDS Business College with an associate's degree. Hallelujah. I know. Thank you. I have four degrees under my belt now. <laughs> associates. Um, her, my favorite story about Kirsten is we talk a lot about the second coming in our family, a lot, because if Christ really is coming and everyone's getting resurrected, that means we're going to see Mom Shell again. And so I was getting Kirsten ready for school one day. It's my favorite Kirsten story. And I'm combing her hair because she can't do her own hair. And I'm combing it, and she can't say her R's either. You have to know that for the story. So here I'm getting her ready, and she says, Mom, we believe in the second coming, right? And I was like, yes, we do. And she says, and Jesus is coming, right? And I said, that is right. And I'm thinking, we're talking about Christ in the morning. I'm such a good mom. <laughs> Seriously. And she says, and when Jesus comes, everyone's getting resurrected, right? And I go, that's right. Everybody gets resurrected. And she says, even Mom Michelle, huh? And I go, even Mom Michelle. And then she pauses, and she goes, yeah, when that happens, you're going to have to sleep in the guest bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, mid-combed, and I'm all, oh, 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 where will I sleep? We're big people. My house is 6'4", so if you come to my house and my neighbor is here, she can attest, our guest bedroom's really nice, beyond comforter, fancy furniture. I just need a TV and a mini fridge, and I'll be like, see you later, you Michelle, go do whatever. Okay, so, I don't know how it's going to but I do have a testimony that it will, and I'm super grateful for that. <laughs> so we immediately had two more girls. We have Lily and Sophia who are in the picture with us. I got pregnant the month after we got married because I didn't know if I'd be able to have kids. Oh, I did. And so we got pregnant real fast and had Lily and Sophia. And I can just remember how hard that was for me because I left being a seminary teacher. I left Sister Uselac. Like that name meant something for almost nine years, eight years. And now I'm just mom. You know, I'm like organizing a spice cupboard and coming up with crafts to keep the kids busy. And it was really hard. And I can remember raising these kids, and for 10 years I just kept thinking, maybe, maybe I'll do something different in 10 years. But I remember the most glorious day of my life was when that little one, Sophia with the glasses, went to her first day of kindergarten. <laughs> and I had four hours to myself. Because she rolled the bus, of course. I'm no dummy. Like, that's going to buy me 30 minutes extra on each end. So I'm like, get on the bus. And four hours. Like, what? And so I remember saying to my husband, okay, I'm going to, like, figure out my thing. Like, what is my thing going to be? So I'm not really Sister Yuzalak anymore. i got to figure out me. And so I said to my husband, I'm, I'm going to run. Like, I'm going to do a marathon. Because that's what all the women in my neighborhood were doing. Well, a lot of us. Not all of us. Right now. Um, <laughs> so I said to him, I'm going to save my money, and I'm going to buy a treadmill, and I'm going to train for a marathon. He's like, okay, whatever. So I saved my money, bought a used treadmill, and I trained solid for like 13, 14 minutes. And I was like, okay, I hate running. Like, I hate running so much. I am not, I like a nice brisk walk or stroll, but not a run. So I'm like, that's not my thing. And so I kept thinking, and I really was praying, Holy Father, help me find my thing. And my sister came to me, and she's like, why don't you do this bike race with me? It's called Little Red, and it's just a women's bike race, so it'll be so fun. And I do like to bike ride, so I, I really did train for this race. For months, I trained. And on the day of the race came the most horrible snowstorm and sleet and hail. And of course, I can do hard things, and I'm gonna teach my kids that. So I did not bow out of that race, and I wanted to. I cried with every pump of my pedal. 
and it was hard. And I usually I live, just so you know, I live in the world of hyperbole, so I'm not exaggerating when I tell you this, though. But there were ambulances along the route treat, treating women for hypothermia. Uh, this is a picture of the day of the race. That's me. And that is, <laughs> up the end, I am miserable. I have She's, when she was in her late 60s, and I was like, I'll let you do it with me. I mean, I'll probably have to leave you in the dust. Yeah, she beat me. She totally beat me. She's amazing. So we got done with the race, and I was like, yeah, the tour day me is over. I'm not a biker. I, I'm not going to be doing that. So I also had a friend in my ward who was trying to figure out her thing. She also had littles, and they went to school finally. And so she called me one day, and she said, okay, I think I found a new thing for us to try. All right, what is it? And she says, come with me to an aerial yoga class. Now, I don't know if you know what that is, but you're hanging from sheets, contorting your body. And I walk in, and I really thought, this might be my thing. <laughs> and I get hooked up in these sheets, and I start to do the splits. And I say to my friend, you have got to take a picture of me. I'm full on doing the splits. We're going to post this. Surf the Soleil is going to see it. They'll contact me. I'm going to leave my family, move to Vegas, and join the troop. This is me in splits. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, that 20, I was so embarrassed when she showed me the picture. I'm like, it's not the split. I couldn't even, my friends had to push my legs back together. And I was like, show this to no one. Oh my gosh, I really thought I was doing the split. And, and I was trying to pull myself up. And I pulled every muscle in my arms. And I stayed in resting pose for the rest of the whole lesson. I don't know if you can see the lady in the back. <laughs> That's what I thought I'd be doing by the end. I really did. I was like, this is my thing. That's her thing. Clearly it's her thing. So I was like, uh, yeah, I'm not. It's over. It's over for me. So I got home that night and I tried, I really was trying to eat. And I was shaking like this as I lifted the fork. Because I pulled every muscle. I'm not exaggerating on that either. All the husband's like, what's your problem? I'm like, I don't know. I think I pulled all my muscles. So aerial yoga, not my thing. A couple months go by, and this really nice woman named Sharon Staples in my ward, who I adore, she comes up to me, and she was in her late 70s, and um, she punches me in the arm, and she says to me, hey, I want you to take Hebrew with me. And I was like, what? And she goes, yeah, take a Hebrew class with me. And I thought, well, you know what? That sounds a lot less painful than what I've been doing, so I'm going to go for it. And we signed up for Hebrew class at the Jewish Community Center in Salt Lake City, Utah. And after my very first class, I was hooked. And I think I found my thing. And seven years later, I'm going into my eighth year of studying Hebrew, I think I found my thing. Like, I love Hebrew so much. It has completely changed the way that I read my scriptures. It's changed the way that I view the world. And, and I love Judaism, and I love the culture and the richness of all of it. It is so beautiful. And I've had an incredible experience even just studying these, these Hebrew idioms and everything that is in our scriptures. And so when I got done with Sharon, I realized Hebrew is going to be a lifelong study for me. And I was super happy to find out that our Hebrew scholar that teaches us, she has a PhD in Hebrew, and she says, I still have to look up words in the dictionary. It's totally normal. I'm like, okay, God, because I was really like such a failure after seven years. She's like, no, you'll do this for your whole lifetime. And I'm committed. And listen, there are times that I, like, I took this whole summer off because I just couldn't balance all of it. 
but I love Hebrew. I love it. And so what I want to share with you today are five Hebrew words that had me blown away when I first learned them. I thought, oh my goodness, this is the greatest thing ever. Okay, so here we go. Five Hebrew words and their importance to our understanding of scripture. The very first word that I remember learning was Elohim. And the reason why this completely struck me was because my whole life, I always thought Elohim was God's first name. And when my teacher taught us that it wasn't, I remember going, what? It's not his real name. Like, I thought it was like James, Kevin, or Steve, and Elohim. Like, I had no clue that, that it did not really mean his first name. So if you go to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, let's go there really fast. And I'm going to do some cool verses to cross-reference with it. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, the very first thing we have is, in the beginning, God. Highlight that word, God. And then you can cross-reference it with Abraham chapter 4, verse 1. Because Abraham chapter 4, verse 1, corroborates the meaning of the word Elohim. In Hebrew, Elohim actually means the gods. It's the Hebrew way of saying God. It's the gods. Now, how cool is that? The reason we know this is because the theme at the end of any Hebrew word is a plural end theme. So when you talk about the Urim and Thummim, it's Urim and Thummim. Urim means light, Thumb means perfection. And so the Urim and Thummim is light and perfection. Isn't that fun? So look for Im endings in Hebrew words. Now this was really cool, my Hebrew teacher taught us this. Let's turn to Psalms chapter eight. Because forever, people, you read this, and many people have, and we're studying Psalms right now. We just studied Psalms eight last week. But if you go to Psalms chapter eight, verse five, Psalms chapter eight is messianic. And so it's gonna teach us a lot about the Savior. And as it speaks about the Savior, we come into verse four and five. And verse four says, what is man that thou art mindful of him? and the son of man that thou visitest him. Verse five, for thou hast made him, speaking of Jesus Christ, a little lower than the angels and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Highlight the word angels because the word angels, and I think this is so cool, and you can see down the footnote below, but in the Hebrew Bible, it's not angels. It actually translates as, for thou hast made him a little lower than Elohim. A little lower than the gods. We believe that, don't we? Isn't that awesome? He is. That's so cool. So it completely changes the way we read that Messianic Psalm of David in Psalms chapter 8, verse 5. So Elohim, the gods. Now, when we take this meaning right here, I think what really was, was struck out to me was that this meaning for deity, it so beautifully falls in line with the young woman's theme. I am a beloved daughter of heavenly parents. That's how it starts out now. Then it says, it also, then I think the thing I love about this is that it also strengthens the doctrine and promises found throughout our temple experience. For women, this is profound for us. This is where we fit in to the whole plan. It's in Elohim. And I don't know how it's all gonna look, but I will tell you right now, I will bear testimony of polygamy. I believe in it, I love it, I'm grateful for it, because I feel like when we were up there in the big seminary in heaven, Doctrine and Covenant section 137 says we were, I think Heavenly Father gave the whole presentation of the plan, and then he asked for questions. And I was probably sitting on the very back row where I love to sit, and I shot my hand up, and I'm like, what about people like me? I'm going to be married to a man who's been married before. What does that mean for me? And I just love how he was like, you get everything, section 131. You get everything as if you were the first wife. 
Because when you marry someone who's been married before, especially to, um, a widower, you, you kind of feel like second choice for a while. It took me a year to get through that and some therapy. But I think <laughs> figuring out, like, I'm not choice number two. I, I'm number one. Yes. I get everything. And I love that. So when you take this word Elohim, though, and this is what's so cool, we fit into the whole plan of salvation when you consider the word Elohim, and then you connect it to the word Jehovah or Yahweh. Okay, this is a really cool word in Hebrew. So when I was taking one of my Hebrew classes with Rabbi Zippel in Salt Lake City, Utah, it was my second class that we had taken at Kolami, the congregation in downtown Salt Lake City, Utah. The rabbi gets up to teach, and every time he taught our classes, he kept saying, oh my G-O-D, oh my G-O-D. He would take the Lord's name in vain constantly. And I remember leaving the class saying to my friend Sharon, I'm pretty, don't, do the Jews believe in the Ten Commandments? Because I'm pretty sure they do, but now I'm not sure anymore. And she's like, boy, I wonder too, we should ask next week. So we get to class next week, and I said, are you going to come up with me and ask? And she's like, no, I'm going to go by yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Rabbi. Uh, so I go up to him and I said, I'm just wondering, um, do the Jews believe in the Ten Commandments? He's like, oh, absolutely. Of course we believe in the Ten Commandments. And I said, that's what I thought. It just seems to me that you, it seems like you kind of break the third commandment sometimes. He's like, oh. like he was so offended that I would even suggest. I mean, it was, and I was a jerk for suggesting it. I should have rewarded it a little bit better. Anyway, he's like, what are you talking about? Of course, I, the third commandment? No, I did not take the Lord's name in vain. And I said, but you keep saying, oh, my G-O-D. And he's like, I haven't made a covenant. No, I've made a promise not to take that name in vain. He goes, that's not the name in the Hebrew Bible. Wait, what? So we go to Exodus chapter 19. Let's go there. I want to show you. Here are the Ten Commandments. Okay. So he has me go there. He says, let's go to the Ten Commandments, and I'll show you in Hebrew what we're talking about. So we have the third commandment, and that is going to be found in verse, let's see, Oh, sorry, Exodus chapter 20, not 19. What am I thinking? All right, Exodus chapter 20. Um, then we have the third commandment, and we're going to go into verse 7. Thank you. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. It's not Lord thy God. It's thou shalt not take the name of Jehovah or Yahweh. It says, it says Yahweh in vain. Yahweh is the most important, most sacred name to all Judaism. They will not say that name. In fact, from what I understand, not only will they never say it, they won't write it, and if it is ever written down, they take that piece of paper and burn it or bury it in the ground. That's how sacred it is. Now, I thought this was so fascinating because he's like, I will never say that name. He wouldn't even say it when he read the scripture at all. Will not say it. And so it kind of... I thought so funny. I put the bush right there and I couldn't even find it. Thank you for seeing my And <laughs> You're like, seven, damn. Oh, there it is. Okay. Um, that makes me laugh. All right. So it's such a sacred name to them that this is very, this was so fascinating to me because then you ask, well, why don't we see Yahweh anywhere in the Bible? So around the time of 500 BC, all Jews decided that they wouldn't, sorry, before that, Jews decided they're never going to say Yahweh. Those who translated the Bible around 500 BC took this same idea and agreed, we are not going to ever have Yahweh in the Bible. So if you go through and read the Bible, the name Yahweh is always replaced with Lord, Adonai, or Jehovah. Jehovah is the Christian rendering of Yahweh. It's how they would say it in English. Instead of Yahweh, the wording, yod heh vav heh up there would be kind of the, the pronouncement of Yahweh. 
That's how they would have said it. Now this spelling is so significant. I have it up there on the side. That yod hey vav hey, I love the way it's spelled. So one of my favorite things about Judaism and the Hebrew language is their letters mean something. And so if I were to ask you guys, what does the letter K mean in our alphabet? What would you say? K, yeah, uh, exactly. If you ask a Jew, what does the letter Kof mean? Or the letter Yod or Aleph? They would tell you, oh, it's Aleph means the head and ox, the very beginning. So now you look up here at Yahweh and let me tell you how Yahweh is spelled. This is so cool. So the first Yod, that little thing at the beginning, is a hand closed upon shaped like this. The hey means to behold or reveal. The vav, that little one that goes lying down, is a nail securely fastened. And then the hey is to behold or reveal. Isn't that amazing? Now, you're probably wondering, why don't the Jews see it? Okay, this is another one of my favorite things. If you go to Doctrine and Covenants section 45, it talks about the second coming of the Savior. And when he comes again, he will reveal himself to the Jews. And it says that he will show them their, his hands. And he will show them the prints in his hands and in his feet. And then the Jews will say, what are those wounds in your hands and in your feet? And then the Savior will say, these are the wounds which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Now forever, when I was teaching seminary in my mind, I was like, oh, that's so good. That is Jesus' way of sticking it to the Jews. Like, ah, I told you it was me. It's not. Ever since I learned Hebrew, it's probably one of the most merciful things that the Lord and God have ever done for his people. Because since the very beginning, since the very beginning, he has spelled his name in the way that they will know him. Isn't that beautiful? And then when he says, these are the wounds which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Friends, this is so significant in scripture, anytime you see it, mark it. Friends is a covenant word. And the Lord is very careful when he uses it. It is not used in the Doctrine and Covenants until you get to section 84, Oath and Covenant of the Priesthood. That's the first time he calls us his friends. And so when he says, these are the wounds I was wounded in the house of my friends, he's saying, in the house of my covenant people. And then it will be this most beautiful, joyous moment of just recognition and love. It will not be a way of sticking it to anybody. I love that about our Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ. Now, this is so awesome, because then when you take Jehovah and you combine it with Elohim, Lord God, you are going to see that so many times. So here's what Jehovah means. It is a verb, and it's the form, a causative form of he will cause to be. That's what Yahweh means also. It means he will cause to be. That's why Andrew Skinner teaches that. If you look up the word, it will tell you that. He will cause to be. Now look how cool this is. When you combine Lord God together, and it happens over 200 times in the Old Testament. So this year, as you're studying, you see Lord God, Lord God, highlight that. Because here's what it means. The Lord is the creator of gods, or the idea that females and males immortality can become more like God in eternity. Because he will cause us to become like him. He will cause us to become Elohim. Isn't that cool? So now, it just makes the whole temple experience like, that's it. That, it makes so much sense to me. We will become gods. And so when you see all the different places that you can read about this, Lord God, I think it's super important that we recognize that we will be reminded of who he is, what he can and will do for us, and then our divine role in the plan of happiness. Now, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 5, is the first time you read that combination of Lord God. Isn't that cool in the creation? And so every time you see it, mark it and remember, oh, I'm being taught here. 
about everything that I can become and what the Lord has in store for me. That's the Lord God. Okay, here's our next one. So this one was so fun. Was a prophet taught, and, and he said this in his 2020 April talk. So April was this word, October is Elohim. So he told us about the word hearken. So in Doctrine and Covenants, section 1, verse 1, it's the very first word that the Doctrine and Covenants begins with, hearken. Now we know that word, and we use that word a lot, but in Hebrew, it is so significant. It is shema, and that's the word over there to the side. Now this is so cool, because the word shema means hearken, hear, but it also means obey. There is no word for obey in the Hebrew language. Shema is used interchangeably for hearken and obey. Here's a couple examples. The first place we read about it is, let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 6. I want you to highlight this. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, this is called the Shema prayer. Jews say this every morning and every night. And they are speaking, and I just think it's awesome in verse 4. It says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. So hear, meaning Shema. Hear and obey, O Israel. The Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, and with all thine soul, and with all thine might. And these are the words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. And I love seven, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk to them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by thy way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. Teach your children to shema. Teach them to hearken, to hear, and to obey. Now in Psalms chapter 27, verse 7, David uses this word. And this is so beautiful. If you go to Psalms chapter 27, verse 7, you just have to read this because we can use this. And I think many of us in this room have used this before. In Psalms chapter 27, verse 7. Alright. Listen, this is my first time doing this. Is it easier if I just put the scripture on the slide? Yes. Or can we turn? Okay. I'll fix that for this week. Alright, here we go. It's the seminary teacher in me. I just want to turn there. Okay. Psalms 27, verse 7. David is saying in his, his prayer. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice, have mercy also upon me and answer me. So he's at, it's, that's an action word there. He's not just asking the Lord to hear. He's saying, oh, please hear and obey. Obey what I'm asking for. I mean, how many of us in this room have said those prayers? You wouldn't be so you know, presumptuous to say, Lord, obey me. But I think many of our prayers have been couched in, but please do what I'm asking. Please answer my prayer. Please act on this thing that I'm asking for. Shame on me. Shame on me. Then Exodus chapter 19, verse 5, is where the Lord speaks to us and talks to us about this word, Shema. And he says this in Exodus chapter 19, verse 5. Now, therefore, if ye will obey my voice indeed. That word right there in Hebrew is Shema. If you will obey or hear my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. We're going to talk about that peculiar. But it was really cool because when the prophet ended, his, when he talked about Shema, he said, in those two words, hear him, God gives us the pattern of success, happiness, and joy in this life. We are to hear the words of the Lord, hearken to them, and heed what he has told us. So consider that when you're teaching and you have the chance to teach a hear word. Apply it and see if you can also put obey in there as well. So that's the word Shema. Okay, then the next word from Exodus chapter 19, verse 5, is peculiar. Now, this is always a fun one because we immediately go to, we're a peculiar people, which means we're what? A bunch of weirdos. Totally. Some of us are. All right. 
I think it's really cool because we have to reframe how we teach this word peculiar, and it's super important, especially for our youth today, to know what this word peculiar means. In Exodus chapter 19, verse 5, when the Lord calls us his peculiar people, he says, shall be a peculiar treasure unto me. And then in verse 6, he says, and ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That kingdom of priests is super important for us to understand that in Hebrew, the word priests is third common plural. In Hebrew, what that means is that there's different ways you can say words. That's how you would translate a verb. You can translate a verb for a first person. Then you can translate a verb for a women and for men. It's very specific. Then you can translate it for a, a we translation. Then you go into this all women. If you're speaking to all women, there's a different way you're going to translate that verb. And if it's all men, there's a different way you're going to translate that verb. But if there is an entire group of women and one man in the room, you translate it as if you're speaking to all men. And so it's really interesting because right here, you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests. That priest, women could be included in that group in that third common plural translation. So he's saying be a kingdom of priests and priestesses. So he's talking to men and women alike in that verse. And in verse 5, we will become a peculiar treasure to him. So the definition of this word peculiar literally means in Hebrew, it's segola. That's how you say it. And it does mean that we are a treasure. We are precious. We are owned. That's the meaning of that. We are owned by him. And he goes into 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20, where we talk about the price of his precious blood. It was paid for us. That's how he owns us. And that he will make up his treasure. In Doctrine and Covenants and in Malachi, it uses the same kind of wording, but it uses the word jewels. But again, it goes into this idea that we're his treasure. And he owns us. And how awesome is that to think now? We are a peculiar people. We are an owned people. We absolutely are. Who is our master? Our Savior, Jesus Christ. That is such beautiful wording. And to be able to call him ours and for him to call us his, that's what that word peculiar means. And so I think absolutely. Now I love being a peculiar people. And I love what the prophet said about this. For us to be identified by servants of the Lord as his peculiar people is a compliment of the highest order. And it absolutely is. And so when people bring up the word peculiar, stop, let, and, and maybe, I mean, it'd probably be rude to like correct them, but in your mind, you know, oh, he's owned. It means his own special treasure. There's so much beauty in that word. Okay, then this one. This is one of my favorite Hebrew words. Phrases, I guess. I love this so much because when I learned this, I, get, I remember sitting at my Hebrew teacher's uh, uh, kitchen table. And she taught me via he. And it's actually, it, it says a W, but it has a blast sound, like via he is how you would say it in Hebrew. And the way that I met this woman who taught me Hebrew, this is kind of a really cool story. So I, after Sharon and I took Hebrew class with the rabbi and at the JCC in Salt Lake, we could not find a Hebrew class anywhere else. We knew there was one down here at BYU, but we'd be required to leave our families for six weeks for an all-intensive course. And I had little, so there's no way my husband's like, good luck. So I didn't take the class, but we prayed so hard we would find a class. A couple weeks go by, and I got invited to go to a breakfast with a group of friends that I've known from college. And we're all sitting around the table, and these women I've known for over 20 years. And I'm sitting next to some woman I've never met before, and I look at her, and I'm like, how, I, how do I not know her? And I said, hey, what is your name? She goes, oh, my name's Mandy, and I was roommates with Sandy in college. I was like, okay, that's why we've never met. Then Sandy says, oh, you're going to want to know Mandy. And then my friend Holly said, yeah, Mandy just returned from Hebrew University studying Hebrew. 
So I was like, will you please teach me Hebrew, please? And she was like, no, I won't. <laughs> and I was like, why? And she goes, I've never taught Hebrew. I just know Hebrew. I just learned it. And oh my gosh, I talked her into it and we would meet. Sharon and I met at her kitchen table for like four years and we studied Hebrew. And I can remember when we got to this word, it came to pass. This is the coolest. So how funny is this? Mark Twain once joked that if Joseph Smith had left out many instances of, and it came to pass, from the Book of Mormon, the book would have been only a pamphlet. <laughs> Love that. Love it. If you go to 1 Nephi chapter 16 and highlight every time you see it came to pass, there are 37 it came to passes in 39 verses. The whole chapter. That's a lot. Now, it was so fascinating for me to learn this about it came to pass. Vayaki. It's found about 1,204 times in the Hebrew Bible, but it was translated only 727 times as and it came to pass. Because when the Hebrew translators were translating it, it was redundant. And they're like, we can't just say, and it came to pass again. So they're going to then put in different words like, and became, and was, or it appears, or it seems. And so you're going to read different translations of this throughout the Bible, which is so interesting because I'm only imagining Joseph Smith reading and, and having Oliver Cowdery translate. And I wonder if at any point that school teacher was like, seriously, it came to pass again? <laughs> little redundant shouldn't we just put in behold or something else and Joseph's like I know I don't know I just says right here we got to do what it says and it came to pass over and over and over again which is so amazing so we have this vayahi and it came to pass and this phrase is so important so when you go and read the book of Mormon now you know what it means and I remember looking at her at the table going oh my gosh Joseph Smith and I will bear my testimony right now he was a prophet and is a prophet of God there is no way he could have possibly written the Book of Mormon. No way. Because there are so many cool Hebraisms in that book that he would have had to have been a master of the Hebrew language in order to do that. Now, if you go into Moroni, we'll just have to go there. Okay? I'll show you this. Go into, into the actual Book of Mormon. So go into Mormon. And look what it says about the Hebrew language. In Mormon chapter 9, I think this is so interesting because he talks about how there might be imperfections in this book, and it's not my fault, and I'm not perfect at writing, but then he says in verse 33, Mormon chapter 9, verse 33, and if our plates had been sufficiently large, we should have written in Hebrew, but the Hebrew hath been altered by us also, and if we could have written in Hebrew, behold, you would have had no imperfection in our record. And there's all these really cool Hebraisms. Don Perry has an awesome book. I highly recommend everything from him. He's my favorite human being in the world. And he writes about all, the, all of the different Hebraisms. One that I love, there is a verse, and I can't remember the, where it is, in the Book of Mormon, where it has and, I believe 12 times in one verse. And, 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 and. And again, I'm sure that Oliver Cowdery's like, you can't do this. Put a comma, what are we doing? But not in Hebrew. Hebrew doesn't have commas, they have ands. That's what you separate your words with. And so when you go and you read a verse and you see all these ands, just know that's your Hebrew comma. Isn't that so cool? But again, Joseph's like, I just got to do what it says. I'm just reading what it says right here. I don't tell you. And there are just so many cool other parallelisms, just really deep things that you can look into. But if you just want like a starter on that, yeah, Don Perry's book is really good. But it came to pass. Look for ands. Um, oh, my gosh. Plates of brass. That's another fun one because in English, Joseph and us, instead of saying the place of brass, we would just say brass plates, right? House of Laban, we're just going to say, no, he went to Laban's house. That would make sense in the Book of Mormon. And then he went to Laban's house, and we got, but in Hebrew, it is house of Laban, plates of brass. 
So notice that as you're reading some of your the different things in the book of Mormon. It's so cool. So all of these, yes. That's a great question. Because <laughs> I can see it. It's a little cute book, and it has scriptures on the front. Yes, thank you. Thank you, Kristen. It's preserved in translation. Highly recommend that book. It is so good because it will just walk you through everything. It'll blow your mind. I mean, I could talk, yeah, we could talk for hours just on that book. So, preserved in translation. Thank you. Yesterday. Now, if you want to kind of get started, if you're interested in learning a little bit more Hebrew, I will give you my favorite source that I love to use, Bible Hub. It's an app that I have on my phone. I use it, I mean, I reuse it 20 times today. I look up Bible Hub stuff all the time. There's a lot of other really great sources you can use. This is just my favorite one that I like. And you can go in there, you can look up any scripture reference from the Bible. Old Testament will be in Hebrew, New Testament will be in Greek, so you're going to want to know that for next year. The thing I like about it is that you have commentary from some of the oldest theologians of our time, like from the 1600s, stuff where our you know, Bible scholars got their information from, and you can kind of read some of their insight. Like there's one man, I can't wait to meet him, his last name, Thomas Gill, and it's Gill's commentary on the Bible from the 1600s, and he just loves women. Like I love everything he writes, it's pro-female, and he just has this great perspective on scripture, and so you can read lots of different commentaries, and then there's tons of different versions. I highly recommend, it's okay, let's just remove the stigma of the NIV, the ESV, all the different versions, use them, love them. It, they, they just, sometimes our Old Testament is translated wrong, and that's okay, Don Perry will tell you that. There is a whole part in Isaiah where he will tell you about something that's translated incorrectly. But the NIV, the ESV, the KJV, and the NLP, those translations will translate it correctly. And so I highly recommend you use and kind of compare and contrast. And then the source that you want for your Hebrew words is the Brown Driver Briggs source, not the Strong's Concordance. Both are great, but Brown Driver Briggs is what is widely accepted among scholars. Strong's is just not quite as developed. So just kind of know that, make sure you, you understand that because, and I had to learn that the hard way. Um, when I wrote something, I had all strong references, and then the whole book came back and was like, brown driver bridge for forever to fix. So don't have that same thing. So you want to use that as your source. Now do not, and I repeat, do not make the mistake I did by going and buying a Hebrew Bible. Because I was so excited to look up words, and I realized, oh yeah, I have to know Hebrew. So don't do that. Just use brown or just use the Bible Hub app. Um, there's a lot of other ones. Kristen, what's the one you like? Oh yeah, Blue Letter Bible, another awesome source. I recommend that one as well. But Bible Hub is just the one I've been able to work the best for me. So I recommend that. Okay, and then here's my last, even though I said I was only do five words, I just have to do this last one. So I snuck one in. Okay, this is the word, because you hear it a lot. And it is shalom. And this is a word that's said often. How many of you have been to Jerusalem? How many of you have been able to hear shalom said to you? Or have you said it? Isn't that so cool? I have never been. I get to go finally for the first time in October. I'm going to knock on wood. I was supposed to go as a seminary teacher the year that 9-11 happened. And then they canceled our whole trip. I was super sad. But here's what I love about the word shalom. And I, I need to go to this reference. 2 Kings chapter 4 is where we're going to get one of the best stories told that uses this. So let's go there. 2 Kings chapter 4. Okay. This story is so beautiful. It starts... In verse 8. And this is why I love this word. It fell on a day that Elisha passed to Shinnam, and there was a great woman. Now, great means royal or rich. 
very wealthy in Hebrew. And she constrained this prophet to eat bread. So she knew who he was. She's like, come, I want you to eat with me. And so it was, as often as he passed by, he turned in thither to eat bread. He knew it was a safe place where he could go. And it was at her home. And she said to her husband, now I love this, I perceive that he's a man of God, a holy man. So in verse 10, let us make a little chamber. She's like, we're just going to add on a room and build it. <laughs> I love that he doesn't have any say in it. She's like, here's what we're going to do. We're going to build a room, and in this room, what we're going to do is it's going to be, she says, we're going to put it on the wall, and we're going to set for him a bed, a table, a stool, and a candlestick. Those are very important things in this verse, because at this time, he would never put those things in a bedroom. It would just be a bed. Many Bible scholars have said that the fact that she put a table, a stool, and a candlestick meant she knew this man would be receiving revelation as a prophet of God. He wanted to get, she wanted to give him a place to write and to receive revelation. So then she says, when you come in, I want you to stay at my house. So then he says to his servants, what should we do for this lady? She's so nice to us, and she's been so kind to let us come and stay with her. And the servant says, well, she doesn't have any children. Maybe, maybe we could do something there. And the, <laughs> and the prophet's like, I think that's a great idea. In verse 16, he said, about this season, according to the time of life, thou shalt embrace a son. And she says in verse 16, Nay, my Lord, thou man of God, do not lie unto thy handmaid. I love it. It's like, you better not be joking with me. Because <laughs> I've wanted kids for a while. And so he's like, no, you're going to have a child. And verse 17, the woman conceived and bare a son at the season that Elisha had said unto her according to the time of life. Now, when the child was grown, in verse 18, it fell on a day that he went out to his father to the reapers. And he said to his father, my head, my head. And he said to the lad, carry him to his mother. And when he had taken him and brought him to his mother, he sat on her knees till noon and then died. And you can imagine how horrible that might have been. Her only child on her knees. And then he passes away. Now the woman's reaction is what's so astounding with this word. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God, so where in, in the prophet's room, and shut the door upon him and went out. And she called unto her husband and said, Send me, I pray thee, one of the young men and one of the asses, that I may run to the man of God and come again. And he said, Wherefore wilt thou go to him today? It is neither new moon nor Sabbath. He's like, You can't go see the prophet. It's not a festival. It's not a Sabbath. You can't do this. And she said, It shall be well. Highlight, it shall be well. It also translates as it is well. And that word in the Hebrew Bible is shalom. And she just says to her husband, Shalom. It's going to be well. And then she saddled an ass and said to her servant, Drive and go forward. Slack not thy riding for me, except I bid thee. So she went and came into the man of God to Mount Carmel. And it came to pass that when the man of God saw her afar off, that he said to Gehazi, his servant, Behold, yonder is that Shunammite. Run now, I pray thee, to meet her and say unto her, Is it well with thee? That's the translation. Shalom. It is well with, shalom with thy husband. Shalom with the child. And she answered, It is well wasn't well. She knew it wasn't well. How could she possibly have said shalom in the moment that she came that her son had died? Because she knew it would be well. That's the beauty in this word shalom. It is well. It will be well with the help of Jesus Christ. And so whenever I think of this word shalom, when you meet someone and you say shalom, peace be with you, the, to me the interpretation is shalom. It is well. It might not be well. Not everything's fine, right? We always say, oh, I'm fine. Everything's fine. Everybody's fine. It's not. But shalom is going to be okay. And then as you continue to read the rest of the story, it's a beautiful miracle about how the prophet does heal her son. 
and in some scholars believe performs the very first mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation in this story, which is so awesome. And then he lives. Anyway, isn't that cool, right, if you continue to read it? But I think it's so powerful that when we read Shalom, now this is cool. Shalom means peace with God, especially in a covenant relationship. So if you look up the word Shalom in the Brown Driver's Dictionary, it will say this. To resign or submit oneself to God, to have peace in Him, and to be rewarded for good. And so to all of you in this room, whatever you're going through, whatever it is in your life, Shalom. You will be rewarded for good. And that's part of being God's covenant people. So when I get to talk about that later this week, which I love. His covenant people being part of that Lord God um, combination. Being his peculiar people because we are willing to shema his commandments. We will be shalom. And that is my testimony. And I believe it with all of my heart. It has to be shalom, right? There's many times raising kids where I was like, shalom, <laughs> shalom, and there are times in our life where that might be all you can say is shalom. But one last thing that I want to show you, because this is pretty cool, go back to the word Yahweh. Thank you, thank you, perfect. Okay, so go back to the word Yahweh, because I'll teach you this one last thing. So, this is really pretty awesome. The word Yahweh, when you say it, Yahweh, there's something about it that many Jewish scholars believe that it is a breath. I want everyone to take a big breath right now with me. Go in your nose and out your mouth. That felt good, huh? Anyone in here into mindfulness and meditation? Right? <laughs> Do it again. One more time. Ready? Then let it out. How cool that many scholars believe the reason why his name is Yahweh is because it's a breath. Inhale, Yah. Let it out. Do it again with me. But there have been times in my life where that's the only word I could say. It's the only prayer I could give. I didn't have any strength, and it was hard. And I think it's really powerful that if you get on your knees and all you can do is take a deep breath, he hears you. And he absolutely will hear you. He will hear your Yahweh. And he will be there to hear and listen and make it shalom. And I leave that with you in the name of Jesus Christ.